Here's a, a sporting experience I would never want to have. Imagine that you show up at this game, and you're supposed to be playing in the game, but you don't know when it started, you don't know when it's supposed to finish, you don't know what the objective of the game is, and you don't know any of the rules. Okay, what would you do? You'd probably turn to the other players, ask them those four questions. What if they were completely uninterested in your questions? Looked at you oddly for even asking them. Well, next, you'd probably try to find a coach or a manager to get some answers to your questions. What if the coach was just standing there looking at the chaos on the field because no one knew the answer to these four questions, and he was just yelling, great job, everyone. You're all doing fantastic. Keep going. We've got a first-place trophy waiting for everyone. Well, finally, you'd probably try to find the umpire or the referee, try to get some definitive answers to your questions. What if you found out that the players had gotten frustrated with his or her calls and sent him or her home? It is the answers to these four questions, the start, the finish, the objective, and the rules of the game that allow us to play and enjoy a game in a meaningful way. If you don't have answers to those four questions, all you can do on the field is pretend and hope that nobody recognizes that you have no idea what you're doing. Now, sadly, this is not just a game. This is real life. Many people are deeply confused about the answers to those four questions. Where have we come from? Where are we headed? What's the purpose of life? And how should we live in light of that? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And I find it interesting that when I give you the sports example, it's immediately obvious to all of us that, of course, you can't engage in the game in a meaningful way if you don't have the answers to those four questions. Well, why then would we think that we could engage in life in a meaningful way if we don't have answers to those same fundamental questions? Now, a lot of people will grant me the importance of those questions, but what they'll say is that we used to think that we needed God to answer these questions, questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, but that's because we didn't know enough about science. We used to think we needed God as an explanation for rain and rainbows and thunder and lightning and shooting stars. But now we have scientific explanations for these things and so we can bid farewell to God. I mean, why would we need God to provide rain when we can now build a major metropolis in the middle of the desert? Tonight, I want to resist this way of thinking by presenting to you a new and highly scientific argument for the existence of God that I think is going to become very influential in the years ahead. And here it is. If there is no God, how come the world fits so perfectly into a chicken? Okay, obviously that's just a joke. We're going to get deeper than that, I hope. <laughs> but for a long time, that's about as rational as I thought faith could be. I thought Christian faith was for people who didn't think hard enough. I thought that faith had to be blind. I was studying philosophy at Princeton University. I was challenged to read the Bible for the first time. I was always up for a challenge, competitive nature. I took the challenge. I began to read the Bible, but I would cross things out. 
I would add things. I would actually write a big BS in the margin wherever I disagreed. And Christians would sort of look over my shoulder and say, Vince, why do you have a BS in the margin of your Bible? And I'd say, oh, that verse makes for a great Bible study. <laughs> that was my starting point. But things changed because as I continued to read, I just fell in love with the person of Jesus, the way that he treated people, the way that he treated the marginalized, the way that he treated people who weren't treated well. And then I kept reading and I got into the Acts of the Apostles and I expected this faith to be blind. But then I kept coming across words like explaining and convincing and persuading and debating and even proving. I found the Bible asking me to love God with my mind. I didn't expect that at all. I found the Bible praising one people group for being more noble than another. Why? Because they examined the scriptures daily to determine if what it was saying was actually true. And I realized I had just assumed that Christian faith had to be blind. You had to check your brain at the door. That was not at all what the Bible was asking of me. Things changed because I read the scriptures and because I met a community of people who took my questions seriously. That's why I love that this church is doing this series. I met people who didn't make me feel bad for having questions. They actually welcomed my questions. They thanked me for my questions. They acted like I was giving them a gift for having these difficult questions and these serious objections to faith. And I think they were absolutely right to do that. And I want to encourage you, ask your questions. Encourage other people to ask their questions. There are two reasons, at least, why we should be very excited and highly value questions. First, the answer to any question is something true. And I believe as a Christian that all truth is grounded in God. The answer to any question is something true and all truth is grounded in God. So anytime you ask a question, you have put yourself in position to learn something new about God. And anytime that someone else asks you a question, they have given you the gift of providing you with the opportunity, if you will think prayerfully enough and creatively enough, to share with them something about who God is and what God has done. Second reason I get really excited about questions, questions are just how you get to know someone, anyone. If I want to get to know you in a deep and meaningful way, I ask you questions about yourself. And you give me an answer, and I'm not satisfied with just a superficial answer. I ask deeper questions about who you are and what you've done and your life story. I dig even into those parts of who you are that other people shy away from, that other people would rather avoid. Questions are how you get to know a person. Well, Christianity claims that we serve a personal God. And so asking those questions is a first and a necessary step towards faith in that God. Let's never make anyone feel like having serious questions about faith is a sign of lack of faith. Actually, it is a precondition. It is a necessary requisite of taking significant steps towards faith in the first place. For me, it was in college. The first time that I met people that took my questions seriously and it changed my life in every respect, completely and radically and transformatively. And my thinking began to change on each of the fundamental questions of life. Origin, where did we come from? Destiny, where are we headed? Meaning, what's the purpose of life? And morality, how should we live in light of it? Let's look at all four of these. Four categories that Ravi has identified. They have framed much of his ministry 
throughout the years. And let's start with origin. Where did we all come from? Now, for a long time, my assumption was that Christianity offered the crazy answer to this question. God made it. But science offered the sober, sensible, rational answer to that question. I've changed my mind about that, and here's why. Consider big-picture explanations for the universe. How did all of this get here? There are only three primary options. Number one, God made it. Now, I might just put my hand up and say that is a remarkable option. That is an absolutely extraordinary option. But let's look at what the other alternatives are. Alternative number two, the universe just popped into existence from nothing for no reason whatsoever. Now, this too is an utterly remarkable, extraordinary, you might say miraculous option. The physical stuff in our everyday lives doesn't tend to pop in and out of existence. If it didn't now, why should we think that it did at the beginning? How about a third option? The universe has always existed, extending infinitely back in time, but without any explanation for why it has done so. Well, now maybe you have an explanation for why each part of the universe can be explained by some part that came before it, but you still have absolutely no explanation for why there is this massive, intricately designed universe at all. I think that, too, is utterly remarkable. I call this, what's on the screen right now, the normalcy of the supernatural. These three options, they exhaust the relevant alternatives, and every one of them is utterly remarkable. Every one of them is extraordinary, well outside the realm of the ordinary. And even if you were to say, you know what, I can see that all three of these options are a bit crazy. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to commit myself to any of them. I'm going to remain agnostic about the whole issue. Well, you're still committed to one of these three things being true, because they're the only logical options. And that in itself is just as miraculous. The conclusion, I think, when you actually sit down with someone and think this through, is that we live in a miraculous world. I don't think it matters whether you're a theist, an atheist, or agnostic. I think it matters fundamentally and deeply and more than anything whether or not you're a theist, an atheist, or an agnostic in the most fundamental sense. But regardless of which one of those categories you fall into, I don't think you can get around the fact that we live in an utterly remarkable, extraordinary, I would say even miraculous world. Every one of us is committed to believing something extraordinary. God may be an extraordinary explanation of the fact that right now I am standing on a rock that is rotating at a thousand miles an hour while it flies around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour while it gets hurled through the universe as part of a galaxy moving at over a million miles an hour, a, ga a universe with laws so orderly that human life exists. Utterly remarkable. And we just go about our days just walking to the grocery store and paying for our groceries. And we never stop to think just how incredible it is, the world that we live in and the lives that we live every day. God may be an extraordinary explanation of that fact, but criticism without alternative is empty. That's a phrase I hope you'll remember. Criticism without alternative is empty. If you say to me, Vince, you have a terrible phone. You, your phone is horrible. It would be reasonable for me to respond and say, okay, I'm willing to take your criticism. What type of phone do you think I should get instead? And if you respond to me and say, oh, well, actually, I've never seen or heard about a phone better than yours. 
your criticism would lose weight. It would no longer be a strong criticism. Criticism without alternative is empty. And if someone criticizes a belief of yours, it's perfectly reasonable to respond with the question, okay, well, what belief do you think I should hold instead? What is the alternative? I was reminded of this a number of years ago. I was exchanging emails with a friend of mine, a retired Princeton University professor of the history of science. And he wasn't a Christian, and I was, and we were talking back and forth about some of his objections and some of the responses that I would want to give. And he wrote me a long email detailing all of his objections to Christianity. And then at the bottom of the email, the last line, as if to trump all the other arguments, simply said, nor can I believe in a virgin birth. No further argument. As if to say it would be crazy to believe in such a thing. And I began to draft an email back to this friend and professor of mine, trying to explain why maybe he could believe in a virgin birth. And then it dawned on me. I thought, wait a minute. Actually, he already does. Everyone believes in a virgin birth, whether they realize it or not. Let me explain that. Christians believe that Jesus, as God himself, came down and was born of a virgin. Again, I might just put my hand up and say that is absolutely remarkable. Absolutely extraordinary. But what exactly is the alternative? Take the brilliant Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking's attempt to propose an atheistic birth of our universe. Here's what he says. He says, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason why there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. Is that any less miraculous of a virgin birth than the virgin birth of Jesus? That seems to me also to be absolutely extraordinary. Sounds a lot like a virgin birth to me. Or consider the words of prominent atheist philosopher Quentin Smith. This is a man with over 12 books published, academic books, over 150 peer-reviewed articles. A very serious player in the academic field of philosophy. And here's what he has to say. He says, the fact of the matter is that the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. We should acknowledge our foundation in nothingness and feel awe at the marvelous fact that we have a chance to participate briefly in this incredible sunburst with interrupts without reason, the reign of non-being. That definitely sounds like a virgin birth. And again, I think we're led to the same conclusion. We live in a miraculous world, and there is no getting around that fact. It's not a matter of whether you believe in a virgin birth. It's just a matter of which virgin birth you choose to accept. We can believe in the virgin birth of an atheistic universe that is indifferent to us, a universe where there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference as Richard Dawkins has put it, or we can believe in the virgin birth of a God who loves us so deeply that he came to be born among us and to live beside us, to call us family and to call us friends. The exact opposite of blind, pitiless indifference. Someone who's not blind to anything about you. Someone who knows you in absolute full and yet loves you an absolute full. What an incredible gift. Origin. Let's talk about morality. Most of us believe in morality. We believe 
It's a real thing. Most people in society believe in morality. They believe some things are good and some things are bad and some things are right and some things are wrong. We believe that all people should be treated with dignity and respect and fairness. We believe that it is self-evident that all people were created equal. At the foundation of this morality that we all believe in and that we're all grasping for is the belief that all people are equally valuable. But then that raises a question. If all people are equally valuable, then there has to be something which is equally true of every single person, in virtue of which every person can be equally valuable. What is it? What is the thing that is equally true of every person, which therefore can make every person equally valuable, and therefore can undergird any plausible morality? What is it? On a naturalistic view of the world, if you take God out of the picture, I think it's very difficult to answer that question. All of our natural endowments are distributed along a spectrum. Some people are less intelligent than others. Some people are less happy than others, less healthy, less wealthy, less good at passing on their genes, less good-looking, less capable of benefiting society. And all of these things, they change over time. So what is it that is equally true of every single person and completely unchanging? I think only one thing, the love of God. And not just any God. There are plenty of gods out there that say, I will love you if you are good enough. I will love you if you believe in me. No, I'm talking about the extravagant, unconditional, no ifs love of the Christian God, which is for every single person and which cannot be earned and cannot be lost. Christians call it grace. It's my favorite word. It means unmerited love. The philosopher Robert Adams, he's a Christian philosopher, he puts it this way. He says, grace is a disposition to love which is not dependent on the merit of the person loved. A gracious person sees what is valuable in the person he loves and does not worry about whether it is more or less valuable than what could be found in someone else he might have loved. Early on in our dating relationship, uh, Joe was a bit blinded by love at this point. And at one point she said to me, Vince, I don't deserve you. And I said, no, you don't. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> and thankfully, and you're still married, someone said. <laughs> and thankfully, I didn't stop there. I said, no, you don't. And I don't deserve you either. Isn't it wonderful? How could we ever deserve another person? as our very own. Surely that's beyond what any of us could ever deserve. The best forms of love are not about what we earn or merit or deserve. They're about grace. They are an unmerited gift. And I like that type of love. It's a type of love that means you don't always need to be looking around the corner or over your shoulder wondering if someone more worthy of love than you is going to come along. It's a love that is secure and therefore, it's a love that you can stop competing for and you can just enjoy. I wonder what the instinctual answer of your heart would be to that question. Do you compete for love? Or do you rest in the knowledge that you can enjoy it because you have a God who loves you with an unmerited, grace-filled love that cannot be earned and cannot be lost? What if, even before the foundation of the world, 
God loved every one of us with grace, with love that is a gift, with love that cannot be earned and cannot be lost, with love that is exactly the same on your best day and on your very worst day, with love of a parent standing and looking down at a newborn child. That child cannot do anything to earn the parent's love, and yet the love could not be more extravagant. The love of a parent, a father, who sees a lost son on the horizon. Luke 15, that wonderful story. This parent who sees his son, the text says, still far off on the horizon. A son who had done everything wrong, who had demanded his inheritance early, more or less to wish your father dead in that culture, and then had run off and had wasted that inheritance on everything that you're not supposed to spend it on. And yet... This father, who sees his son still far off, having done everything wrong, this Middle Eastern man hikes up his robe, would have been extremely embarrassing for him to expose his legs in that culture, and he takes off running like an embarrassing fool after his son on the horizon, and he gets to him, and he throws himself on the son. I've often wondered what that son would have thought as the father was sprinting towards him, what he thought was going to happen. He might have thought it was more likely he was going to get hit than what actually happened. And his father threw himself on him and kissed him and embraced him and welcomed him home. And he gave him sandals for his feet. He gave him the best robe. It would have been the father's own robe. He gave him a ring for his finger. It would have been the family's signet ring saying, you have the authority of a family member again. And then he yells back to the whole family and says, kill the best animal that we have. We're throwing the biggest party that you've ever seen. What if God loves us like that with love that's not supposed to be earned but simply supposed to be returned. That you are loved by God is the one and the only thing that could never change about you. That is why only that gives you your identity. And that is why only God can ground the equal value of every single person, which is at the foundation of any plausible morality. Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous atheist in the world, and for a long time, probably the most influential one as well. He suggested once that morality is simply a Darwinian mistake. Just a mistake. Just an illusion. Nothing real about it. Nothing deep about it. Nothing objective about it. If you reject God, all you are left with is the dangerous prospect of trying to salvage an ethic based on naturalistic evolution, based on survival of the fittest. And that is dangerous. We only need to look to the 20th century and the wars of the 20th century to see how dangerous that is. And what a beautiful contrast that is with Jesus Christ. Not survival of the fittest, but the fittest. God himself willingly sacrificing himself for the least fit for you and me turned things completely on their head. A morality not based on survival of the strongest, but the strongest, God himself, willingly coming and humbling himself and sacrificing himself for the weakest, for you and for me. Origin, morality. What about meaning? A couple of years ago, I was on a college campus. We spent a lot of time at colleges taking all of the questions of students there. And I was on a college campus in Chicago, and we were doing talks on the meaning of life. And outside, we had a whiteboard, and it said across the top, what is the meaning of life? And then there were options under that, and people could choose personal success to find love, no meaning to life, to pass on your genes, 
to have power and influence, to accomplish your goals. And students would walk up to that whiteboard. They would take the marker, they would walk up to the whiteboard, and then they would see the question and they would just stand there, paralyzed. Sometimes for minutes on end, they had no idea how to answer the question. And I could hear the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, in my head. He said, people have enough to live by, but nothing to live for. They have the means, but no meaning. People have enough to live by, but nothing to live for. They have the means, but no meaning. What is the meaning of life? What does it mean for something to have meaning? Does this collection of letters have meaning? Well, it depends. It depends on whether or not it's a word. It depends on whether someone intentionally put these letters side by side in order to communicate something or whether it is just a random collection of letters. Meaning relies on intelligence and intentionality. My baby niece Camille's first word was dada. And my brother pictured there uh, was so proud. And then I walked into the room and she said, dad, 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 dad. And then the cat walked into the room, and she said, dad, 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 dad. And then a cockroach walked into the room, and she said, dad, dad. And then my brother was no longer proud. <laughs> Point is, randomness is the enemy of meaning. Even if something appears to have meaning, it might not if it was not intentional. Even when something looks meaningful, it is only actually meaningful if it is the intention of an intelligent being. Was our universe intended? Over the last 35 years, something called the fine-tuning argument has strongly suggested that it is. Here's how. The universe that we live in, it could have taken many different forms. And scientists, not just Christian scientists, but scientists in general, have come to a consensus that there are dozens of fundamental features of our universe that needed to be precisely the way they are in order for life to be possible. Not just our form of life, not just life on the planet Earth, but any form of life anywhere in the universe. Let me take just one example. If the explosive force of the initial expansion of the universe had been different in one part in 10 to the 60th, no life would have been possible. In other words, the percentage difference you could have while still accommodating the possibility of life is a zero followed by a period followed by 57 zeros followed by a one. If that initial expansion had been even the slightest bit weaker, the universe collapses back in on itself almost immediately, far too quickly for any form of life to develop. If that initial expansion had been just the slightest bit stronger, all of the particles literally disperse into thin air. They wind up so far from each other so quickly that all you could have got would have been cold, simple molecules, nothing like the sort of complex chemistry required for any form of life. Sir Roger Penrose, emeritus professor at Oxford and one of the world's leading mathematical physicists, he estimates that the overall difference you could have when you put all of these features together is a difference only of one part in 10 raised to the power of 10 raised in turn again to the power of 123. I would write that percentage out for you, but even if I could take all of the matter in the universe and turn it into paper, 
I would still have far too little paper to print the required number of zeros. I would need more zeros than there are particles in the universe. Those are the sorts of odds we're talking about. Sir Fred Hoyle, the late Cambridge astronomer, one of the 20th century's most significant scientific thinkers, he compared the random emergence of even the simplest cell on randomness. If it was just a random universe without God, he said the probability of that would be like a tornado blowing through a junkyard and just happening to produce a perfect Boeing 747 airplane. These are the sorts of odds that we're talking about. What explains this incredible precision? Now imagine that by this point in the talk, you're unbearably bored. Hard to imagine, I know. But try to imagine that. And so you take out a deck of cards and you start playing poker with Pastor Derek. Not for money. But you're playing with Pastor Derek and in the first 12 rounds, he gets 12 straight royal flushes. What is going on? Oh, they're pretty quick to throw you under the bus there. Pretty quick. Yes, of course, he's cheating. Why? Because it's so incredibly unlikely to get 12 straight royal flushes or to win the lottery 12 times in a row. It's so incredibly unlikely on chance alone that someone must be messing with the cards. Even if before you started playing, you thought there's only a 1% chance that this person would ever cheat. If you saw them get royal flush after royal flush after royal flush in a row, if you saw someone win the lottery time and time and time and time again, you'd have no choice but to conclude that someone was arranging the system. It's a simple analogy, but this is exactly what scientists are telling us is going on in our universe. One royal flush after another. Could it be that the evidence warrants the same conclusion? That someone got their hands on the cards and carefully arranged the system. Someone designed the universe. The Bible says that you are a word not just a random collection of letters, but a word. It actually goes further than that. It actually says that you're a poem. It uses the Greek word, poema. That word is used to describe only two things in the Bible. One, the natural world. God's creation is his poem. That's a Romans 1. And then there's another passage in Ephesians 2. And it says, for we are God's handiwork. You and me. Another translation says, for we are God's masterpiece. And that is the same word, poema, poem. Are you a random collection of genetic letters? Or are you a poem which has been intentionally and carefully and intimately crafted by God himself? Are you a sestina? That is the question behind the question of the meaning of life. You know, many people assume that the advancement of science has disproved God. I once assumed that. That is truly an unfounded rumor, and I want to say that emphatically tonight. Arguably, the two most significant scientific discoveries in all of cosmology in the last hundred years, that the universe had a beginning the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, and that the universe is incredibly finely tuned for life. They point not away from God, but they point strongly to God. 
Robert Jastrow. He was the first chairman of NASA's Lunar Exploration Committee, and he was recipient of the NASA Medal for Exceptional Scientific Achievement. I think he put this very well. Here's what he said. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Origin, morality, meaning, finally destiny. Where are we headed? Are we headed anywhere? I saw a commercial a while back, depicted a baby being born. It's kind of an odd commercial, but then this baby flew through the air for 30 seconds. And as it did, as it was flying, it fast-forwarded through every stage of the child's life. And so it was a baby, and then a toddler, and a child, and an adolescent, and an adult, and then became elderly. And then at the end of the commercial, comes down out of the sky and crashes into a grave. Dead. And then the screen goes black, and words flash across the screen. <laughs> Life is short. Play more Xbox. And I responded like you did. You know, I, I laughed, but then I also sort of caught myself, and I was like, that's funny, but it's also devastating. And I found myself asking the question, really? Is that the best we've got? Scientifically, the universe is headed for a heat death. It's just going to become cold and without energy. And long before that, scientifically, the same is going to be true for us, exactly the same end. We're going to lose our energy, and we're going to lie in a grave, dead and cold. Is that the best we've got? Is that the best we've got when a friend commits suicide, when a loved one dies, when there's a senseless mass murder in your city, when the person that you trust most betrays you, when you feel so alone that it hurts. My cousin Charles, he died a few years ago. He went to dinner with my Aunt Regina. He started choking on a piece of food, and they couldn't get him to start breathing again. And a few minutes later, that was it. We walk around so often each day like we're invincible, but that is how fragile life is. Play more Xbox? Really? Is that the best that we've got? Life is short and it's meaningless and it's all headed towards death and injustice, so just do your best to try to distract yourself and spend more time on Facebook and Xbox. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand, how few yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep while I weep, while I weep. Oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? Oh God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? A dream within a dream, Edgar Allan Poe. What is our destiny? Will our dreams amount to anything? Or will they all be swept away? I remember for one of my birthdays, I was a little kid. I must have been about eight. And I made this deal with my dad to build me some steps up this massive tree in our backyard. And then I made a further deal with him that every year on my birthday, he would build a few additional steps. And I thought it was so cool. I thought years later, I'd be able to climb up hundreds of feet in this tree and look out over the entire neighborhood. 
I remember having these extraordinary dreams for life as a child. I remember having these great expectations. I remember nothing feeling out of reach. I wonder what your expectations were life for life were when you were a child. I wonder what they were 10 years ago or five years ago. I wonder what they are today and how they have changed. Many people start out with extraordinary dreams for life, but over time, the reality of the brokenness of this world, it chips away and it chips away and it chips away at that childhood idealism until all that's left is adult cynicism. One guy we met at a college university who I've been journeying with towards faith, his name's Dylan, not a Christian yet, great questions, and he told me uh, over Skype last time we spoke, I thought it was very insightful. He said, life is like a movie. He said, but the problem is the credits never roll. When you finally get to resolution in life and it looks like things are going to work out well, the credits never roll. Instead, it just cycles right back into the same frustrations and the same anxiety and the same brokenness over and over and over. Albert Camus, he likened life to the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus condemned to roll a large boulder up a hill. And he would roll that boulder up the hill only to watch it roll back down. And then it would take everything he had to roll it back up to the top only to watch it roll back down over and over again. He tried so hard and he never got anywhere. Camus called it never-ending defeat. Perhaps some of us can relate. Life is short and it lacks meaning and it's headed nowhere. So just play more Xbox. Jesus Christ offers such a better hope. I'm so thankful to be able to stand up here and say that. Two years ago, one of my students in Oxford named Ariel, uh, 23 years old, perfectly healthy, great sports person, loved sports, and she was diagnosed with a rare condition, a cavernoma in her head, a cluster of cells prone to bleeding in her head, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she was told, you probably only have a couple years left to live. And I remember only a few days after she had received that diagnosis, I was able to spend some time with her. And she told me about a moment where she found herself looking in the mirror, and she was testing the limited mobility she had on her right side because of what was going on in her brain. And the questions that came into her mind, she told me, were these. Is this the strongest I'm ever going to be? Is this the healthiest I'm ever going to be? Is this the prettiest I'm ever going to be? And then she told me of the amazing peacefulness that came over her as she remembered the answer to those questions. No, absolutely not. There will come a day when her body will be able to do far more than it ever has before. And I remembered in that moment that she loves to snowboard. And so I asked her, do you think they'll be snowboarding in heaven? And I wish you could have seen how unhesitatingly and how confidently she said, absolutely. She said, in soccer, too. <laughs> and I wish you could have seen the smile on her face as she said it. Would you have that confidence? Why could she have that confidence? Only because of the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection is true then what that means for you is that if it comes to a point in your life when it seems like there is no hope, if it comes to a point in your life where it seems like even death is inevitable and there's no way to escape it, well, death is not the end. There's more. There's hope no matter what. 
the words of our dear friend and teammate, a former colleague of mine at RZIM, Nabil Qureshi, who we lost last year to cancer at the age of 34. But he remained completely steadfast and confident to these words to his very last breath because he knew that Jesus is alive. He knew that death could not hold him, and therefore he knew that there was a promise that it could not hold him either. Jesus has promised that I will see Nabil again. I will see him in a place where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? That same passage says, because God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. Little detail that not everyone notices, but what an amazing promise that is. Not just that the tears are going to be wiped away, but that God himself, perhaps Jesus in his bodily resurrected form, will literally wipe the tears from our eyes. We have a promise that Jesus has gone and prepared a place for us where we're going to live together in his Father's house, which has many rooms. And as I was preparing the content for this talk, I found myself reflecting on the fact that Nabil and his wife Michelle and their daughter Aya, they used to live when we were in Oxford. They were in Oxford too, and he lived in the same apartment building as us, just two floors below. And we used to love seeing him in this window as we walked by, and he'd hang his big arm right out that window, and then Anybody that walked by that had a smile on their face or especially someone who didn't have a smile on their face and looked like they needed someone to talk to, he'd invite them right in and show them that Middle Eastern hospitality and break out everything he had in his fridge and offer them food and talk to them about Jesus and about life and about hope and about love. We loved living in the same building as him. And as I was preparing the content for this talk, I found myself wondering if maybe one day Nabil will again live just two floors below. Not metaphorically, not symbolically, literally, even physically. What an incredible promise that is. That is how real and how concrete and how tangible the hope of Jesus is. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Where did we come from? Where are we headed? What's the purpose of life? And therefore, how should we live? Do we have answers? Or are we pretending our way through life? Are we from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing? Or are we from someone, by someone, and for someone? Is the center of reality random, or is it relational? Is it impersonal, or is it personal? Christianity, I believe, offers answers to the deepest and most fundamental questions of life. One final question. Can we trust the one who is giving the answers? Can we trust that Jesus, when he answers these questions, is telling us the truth. When I was about six years old, I was out playing uh, football on my next-door neighbor's front lawn. And I was getting knocked around pretty good, playing with older kids, and I started crying. And I came running home to my mom, who was standing on this front porch, sporting the classic 80s onesie. <laughs> and I was crying. And I was yelling, I'm not tough enough. I'm not tough enough. So what did my mom do? Well, she did what any loving mother of a six or seven-year-old son would do. She positioned herself like this. She got in quite an athletic stance. She hung her nose out in the air, looked at me lovingly. And then she said, punch me in the nose. You are tough enough. Punch me in the nose. I know what you're thinking. Crazy Italians. <laughs> it's a true story. And exactly, I just thought, she's crazy. And indeed, she was. But she persisted. She kept saying, punch me in the nose. Punch me in the nose. You are tough enough. 
And I don't know what sort of psychological state I must have been in, but finally I did. I reared back, beginning of my boxing career, I reared back, I gave my mom a straight right hand to the nose. And to my astonishment and to my mom's astonishment, blood actually began to come out of my mom's nose and trickle down her face. But then came the most memorable, the most vivid image from my entire childhood. Through this blood, which was dripping down my mom's face, came the most just dazzling, radiant, joyful smile. And mom said, now get back out there. <laughs> and she sent me back out into that game. And mom went inside to get cleaned up. <laughs> now you might not know what to make of that story. <laughs> Understandably so. What a bizarre thing for my mom to do. What an unthinkable, messy, bloody thing to do. But I also think, in at least one sense, what an extravagant display of love. My mom chose to bring me into this world. And when she did that, she knew that there would be challenges. She knew that there would be confusion. She knew that there would be suffering and brokenness and tears. But nevertheless, she was trustworthy. She's one of the people who I trust more than anyone. Why? Because when those challenges came, and when those burdens came, and when that suffering came, she bent down into it with me. Even though that meant suffering at the hands of her own child. And that, I believe, is a picture of Jesus on the cross. Where God would not stay somewhere far off on some heavenly throne. But he bent down into our suffering with us, even though that meant suffering at the hands of those that he had created. The night before Jesus died, as he reflected on what he knew the next day would bring, he said to his friends, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I think it's one of the most remarkable lines in all of Scripture. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, saying he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If you've ever experienced deep depression, if you've ever encountered suicide or even considered suicide, there is no depth of agony or helplessness that we can experience in this life that Jesus doesn't understand. The person who can be trusted most is the person who is willing to come and suffer alongside you, the person who is willing to bleed for you, the person who is willing to give their life for you. And only one God has given his life for you. Only one God came down and sat beside you. And when he had to choose his life, or yours. He chose you. That is why I believe we can trust him with the deepest questions of life, with the deepest decisions of life, with everything that we encounter in life. Someone once said that there are two ways to choose a coat. You can check the measurements. You can open it up and look at all the different measurements. 
see if the dimensions make sense. There's another way to choose a coat. You can just put it on and see if it fits. I think both are really important. I never would have been able to consider Jesus, consider clothing myself in Christ, unless somebody was able to show me that some of the measurements, some of the dimensions, at least were in the vicinity of my size, unless someone was able to show me that's just the way I'm wired, unless someone was able to push away some of those intellectual objections about history and morality and science and philosophy so that that truth about Jesus that I had suppressed could rise to the surface. The dimensions were important for me. But ultimately, there is no substitute for actually trying the coat on. We are not invited in Christianity into a philosophical theory. We are invited into a personal relationship and an encounter with a living person of Jesus Christ. And too often what happens is that someone thinks to themselves, okay, I've enjoyed what I've heard tonight. That's helpful. But I'm going to wait until I have all the answers. I'm going to wait until I don't have any questions left, and then I'll make a commitment. Let me tell you, if that's what you wait for, it will never come. I have more questions about the Christian faith now than I did 20 years ago before I became a Christian. You get the answer to one question, and that opens up three more beautiful questions that you have to dig into. And as part of digging into that, that is your discovery process of who Jesus is, and it's worshipful and relational. That never stops. But there does come a point where you've looked at the measurements, you've looked at the dimensions, and you say, I see that that can make sense. I've seen enough to try it on. And the same is true in any relationship. There's only a certain amount that I could get to know about Joe before I decided to take a step of relational trust towards her. There's only so much that I could know from a distance. If I really wanted to know her deeply and intimately and relationally, I had to take that step, take that risk, and take that step of trust towards her. And so I really want to give an invitation uh, to everyone tonight, but especially to those people who have never made that decision. They've heard some things about Jesus. They've seen that some of the dimensions line up, but they've never made that step to say, okay, I'm going to step into this relationally. I'm going to open my heart to God. I'm going to begin to pray to God and see if I encounter him in a tangible and concrete and living way. I would love to pray for anyone who feels like they're in that spot tonight and that they know enough to take that step of trust, which will then allow them to know God in a deep and meaningful and intimate way. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. He said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and be with them and eat with them and they with me. There's a beautiful painting that depicts that verse in Oxford. It's called The Light of the World. And it's a very interesting detail on that painting, which is that there's only a handle on one side of the door. There's a handle on the seeker's side of the door. And Jesus stands there and he knocks, but he doesn't have a handle on his side because he won't force himself into our lives. He will knock and he will invite. He will wait for us to open that door. And so I would love to pray for anyone who would like to open that door tonight. And I would also love to pray for anyone who needs to open the door to some room in their life tonight. And what prompted me to want to pray for this was just a couple days ago when I was doing ministry and a guy came up to the front right at the end 
and he wanted prayer. And he said, he started his prayer by saying, well, I'm saved in all. I'm saved in all. And then he said, however, there are all these areas of my life that if I'm honest, I haven't given over to God. I've given him some things, but there's some rooms that I keep for myself because I want to control them. I want to be the God of those rooms. And so some people may be letting Jesus into that home for the first time. Some people may have done that, but we know in our hearts that there's something significant that we're holding on to ourselves. And we know that tonight God is stirring something in us and it's the night in which we need to say, Jesus, you can have everything. Be my privilege to pray for anyone who's in either of those two categories. And what I'm going to do, because I don't want it to be about what I'm saying, but I want it to be about what God's doing in your heart. I just want to take 30 seconds. The band can begin to pray just to give us some privacy. 30 seconds just on your own. Maybe we all can close our eyes. And just 30 seconds of silence, just with the music, on your own with God. Anything you need to say to God tonight, you say it to him in the quietness of your heart. And we just give this space for God to speak anything he needs to speak to you. After that 30 seconds, I'll ask anyone who wants to respond to those two calls to just raise their hand. And that'll be just that physical indication of what's taking place in our hearts. Just 30 seconds with God alone. our heads bowed if you know in your heart that God is asking you to respond to that invitation I'd ask you to just raise your hand thank you wonderful to see that hand raised strongly and confidently thank you thank you I see you on the left there magical about raising a hand but it's just that symbol of responding to God not just in our hearts but even with our whole selves even physically as God came and lived and gave his physical life for us anyone further thank you just another moment thank you we're in no rush Thank you. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. I see you there. 
Thank you. Yes, I see you. Just wait here for a moment. His hands are still raising. Thank you. Wonderful. Yes, I see you there. Praise God. See you in the back. Jesus, we come to you this evening with our hearts open wide to you. And we thank you that you've been here with us tonight. Thank you that you have stirred something new in many hearts. And God, we want to say some simple words to you tonight. We want to say, I'm sorry. I want to say I'm sorry for all the times that we've turned our backs on you and done things our way. We want to say we're sorry for the times that we've hurt people, hurt ourselves, hurt you. And God, we want to say thank you. Thank you that you're trustworthy. Thank you that you are trustworthy above all because you are the only God who would come and humble yourself and make yourself vulnerable and live a human life you didn't have to live, suffer a human death that you didn't have to suffer and that you would do it for us. God, we're in awe of that. The death that we deserved, you took it on yourself and the life that was justly only yours, you've given it to us. And I pray that life over every person who has responded for that first time tonight. And I pray it also for those who have been holding back from you and are now receiving you in a full way. That they would know the fullness of life that you have promised. That they would know the fruits of your Holy Spirit. That life that's full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God, thank you for those gifts that you're going to shower on each one. And God, finally, we just say please to you. We say, please, will you come into our life? Will you come in a way that's full and intimate and concrete and practical and tangible to us? Even as we put our heads on the pillows tonight, would we know your presence? Would we know a deep peace that transcends understanding? When we wake tomorrow morning, would we wake with purpose? Would we wake with those great childlike expectations for life because we know that nothing is impossible with you and that now we are your friend? God, what a joy it is to pray these things to you and to pray them with confidence, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who you are and what you've done. And so we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.